Jason Lewis. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimists. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So for those who missed our announcement last week, we wanted to remind everyone that our podcast will move, be moving to an every other week format. So following this episode, our next one will be coming out on November 1st. This change is going to allow us to focus time on some upcoming projects we've been wanting to tackle that'll help, you know, the podcast hopefully reach a larger audience, enable us to, you know, build more community and hopefully, you know, make it easier for people to help fight climate change. And on a, on a related note, we wanted to thank all our listeners who've been part of supporting the podcast over the last year. You know, it, it's your donations that help us bring you the content that you're hearing and for those who haven't donated but appreciate what you're getting from us, we'd love to have you join our community of supporters. All you have to do is uh, head over to our website and click the donate button. And as Todd says, no donation is too small or too big. Well, methane emissions are the second largest driver of climate change behind carbon dioxide. And while you know CO2 rightfully gets most of the attention when it comes to climate mitigation efforts, Reducing methane emissions is a huge opportunity to curb global temperature rise. And when we look at the fact that we need to cut greenhouse gases by, you know, 50% in now roughly the next seven to eight years, methane emissions from oil and gas specifically represent some low-hanging fruit. So today we have an expert joining us to talk about the opportunities to cut methane and what challenges we need to overcome to get there. But before we start geeking out on methane, Let's talk about uh, this week's Reason for Hope. Thanks, Jason. The uh, United Nations have agreed to phase out emissions from aviation by 2050. And although this, is, this agreement is non-binding at this stage, it represents a significant achievement in the effort to decarbonize the sector uh, because aviation currently represents 3% of global emissions, but with commercial flights forecast to triple by 2050, this is going to become more significant. The International Council on Clean Transport forecasts that the emissions could be cut by 85% alone through the use of demand management, advances in efficiency and biofuels. So great move in the right direction, but I really feel this needs to be binding. Yeah, and hopefully this lays the groundwork for that. You know, we know, uh, you know, we'll get into it with methane. When there's there's pledges without teeth in them, uh, you know, bad actors tend to keep doing the same thing they've been doing. So yeah, hopefully this sets the groundwork for, you know, binding policies. And, you know, maybe we just need to go the same route that, that we're going with internal combustion engines and just set dates when, you know, planes can't fly, you know, in and out of certain countries unless they're, you know, using sustainable biofuels. Yeah, because without that, the, the private sector don't want to step up to the plate and develop the technology required to make that uh, happen. And so it's, you know, w- with these aspirational targets, the, the can end up as we found with many issues associated with climate change and other environmental factors, just it gets kicked down the road a little further and we, we just haven't got time for that. Yeah, totally agree. And, you know, as a reminder to folks, if you are going to fly, because the reality is the developed countries of the world are, are the biggest flyers by far, you know, make sure that you're, you know, taking the time to buy some offsets because we all need to be doing our part at this stage to reduce those emissions. Pivoting to our, our main topic, our guest today, Rachel Cletus, is the policy director with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She leads the program's efforts in designing 
and advocating for robust, just, and equitable policies to address climate change. Rachel is an expert in climate resilience and clean energy policies with over 20 years experience. She's also an expert on the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Process and has been attending international climate negotiations since 2009. And she holds a PhD and MA in economics from Duke University, as well as a Bachelor of Science in economics from West Virginia University. So super stoked to have her on the, on the program today. Rachel, welcome to Climate Optimists. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. So to kick things off, when it uh, comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? Well, I know sometimes it's hard to hang on to hope when uh, the news on climate and the climate crisis is so dire. But what gives me hope is that so much of what can help solve the climate crisis is within our reach. Uh, The technologies, the solutions, they're well within our reach. And the other thing that gives me hope is that these are solutions that won't just address climate change. They'll also clean up the air and water. And if we do it right, it can really set right decades of uh, injustices that have left some communities so marginalized and disadvantaged when it comes to access to clean energy, uh, better infrastructure, and freedom from pollution from fossil fuels. Yeah, I like you, you know, you're highlighting the the other sort of co-benefits of doing this because um, I think those can get, you know, kind of lost in the shuffle, but are but are really, you know, critical when we talk about the sort of the systemic change we have in front of us. So before we, we dive into methane specifically, how did you find your way to, to policy director at, uh, at UCS? So I trained as an economist uh, years and years ago, and I have always had an interest in uh, the environmental aspects of our economy. And over time, really got interested in the science of climate change. And I have to say, uh, originally was disappointed to see that economists weren't talking enough about the challenge of climate change, how it was not just quote unquote, an environmental problem, but really connected to well-being and um, the economy. And and so I got really interested in doing interdisciplinary work. um, And I'm uh, really fortunate to work with a great team of climate scientists and communicators and outreach specialists at uh, UCS. And my work on uh, policy touches uh, both climate and clean energy. And uh, it's been really such a delight and such a privilege to be able to advocate for the kind of solutions that I think can help us address this crisis. So let's let's dive into methane, maybe starting with kind of the basics of how much does methane as a a gas contribute to to climate change and give people kind of a sense of the, the primary sources. Sure. So just to take a step back, uh, a lot of folks have heard of carbon dioxide, which is released when we burn fossil fuels and how uh, it is contributing to the rise in global average temperatures. Methane is another very potent heat trapping gas. In fact, uh, on a 20-year horizon, it's about 80 times as potent as carbon dioxide. And it comes from a number of different sources. It comes from things like uh, landfills, uh, from oil and gas operations, 
and from agricultural sources like livestock, like uh, rice paddies. Um, it's a short-lived climate pollutant, but it is very powerful and it's critical to cut methane if we're going to meet our climate goals. At this point, uh, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, which is the premier international scientific body, uh, methane is responsible for about a quarter of the, the warming that we've seen uh, since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. So wow. very significant contributor, although behind carbon dioxide in terms of its contribution. And then, you know, you mentioned the potent but short-lived nature of, of methane. And I guess maybe that's why, in part, it's receiving a lot of focus now, because if we, you know, take aggressive measures to, you know, to reduce it, then we see a benefit quickly versus something like carbon dioxide that, you know, takes much, much longer to be pulled out of the, the atmosphere. Yeah, so if we are able to cut methane emissions aggressively within this decade, we could shave off, you know, 0.2 to 0.3 degrees Celsius in global average temperatures. So that is really, really critical. But just to be clear, it's both and. Um, methane is not an escape hatch. We have to still cut carbon dioxide emissions because they are the largest contributor to uh, global warming. So given, you know, methane's potency and, you know, it's looking at it as an opportunity for achieving some of those, we'll call them near-term emission reductions that we need, you know, you mentioned some of the sources kind of, where do they stack up? In other words, if you were to kind of put them in buckets, what's sort of the, the leading at this point source of, of global methane emissions and what would be like the number two so people kind of have a sense of where they sit? Yeah, so at this point... Uh... One thing we do know is our data on methane globally is our our sense of where the methane emissions are coming from is constantly evolving. But at this point, it's about a third from land use, things like uh, landfills, uh, biomass. Uh, It's a little more than a quarter from fossil fuels, and that includes things like oil and gas operations, coal bed uh, mining, And then uh, a little over a quarter of it is coming from agricultural sources. And that includes things like uh, livestock, enteric fermentation, and uh, rice paddies. But the reason I started by saying that uh, our data is constantly uh, improving is that what we're finding is that all over the world, there is a significant challenge in underreporting of methane emissions from fossil fuels. The International uh, Energy Agency, for example, says that that estimate globally might be off by as much as 60 to 70 percent. So that is a very significant uh, problem. We know that globally methane emissions are surging and scientists are able to look at the signature of the kind of methane uh, to understand better where it's coming from. Uh, but the reality is at the national level, we still have a very significant undercount. Wow, I knew I knew there was uncertainty there. I didn't realize it was it was on that order. I wish I could call it uncertainty. Uh, unfortunately, this one's going to break in the wrong direction. It's pretty clear that it's an undercount. Just in the last few weeks, we've seen a study come out uh, showing that flaring, which is a very common practice used by oil and gas operators, uh, where they flare gas that's uh, being released that's not being used. 
what they found is that a flaring is happening in an incomplete way and it's not burning off all the methane. And in fact, there's five times as much higher methane emissions likely because of the, uh, from these flares than uh, had been uh, estimated before. So every step of the oil and gas operations uh, either uh, has, has significant potential to clean up methane emissions because that's the opportunity here. Uh, there are many cost-effective ways uh, to cut methane emissions by cutting leakage, making sure that we have complete flaring. The International Energy Agency says that almost half of methane emissions from oil and gas operations can be cut at no net cost. Um, so that's an incredible opportunity here. You know, why are we not doing this? It makes all the sense in the world to cut these emissions, and we can even go further. Yeah. So I, I guess one of the things that I wanted to make sure, you know, I understand and our listeners understand are are kind of the barriers. So, you know, we're talking about the fact that there's a huge opportunity to reduce methane emissions from the oil and gas sector. You know, what has prevented that up until now? What are what are the barriers and how are things evolving now in a way that, you know, those barriers are are being removed? So there's some real important progress that's been happening because more and more uh, the technologies to cut these methane emissions are widely available and cost effective. One of the really important uh, technological advances is just detection of these methane leaks because the infrastructure in the oil and gas industry is quite widely dispersed uh, through the production chain and storage chain and also the geographies. And making sure that there's good monitoring and that uh, companies are catching the leaks when they happen and quickly acting to stop them. That's uh, the opportunity here. The reality is that a lot of companies have resisted having regulations to cut these emissions. And at this moment, the Environmental Protection Agency is in the process of developing regulations for oil and gas operations in the U.S. that we expect to see imminently. And that will be one incentive for companies to invest in these technologies to ensure that uh, leaks are addressed. Globally, there's been a really important uh, advance. There's now a global methane pledge that more than 100, 100 countries have signed on to, committing to cut emissions globally 30 percent uh, by 2030. So again, this is a real opportunity for these technologies and these practices to become standardized across the industry because many of these companies are global and they use very similar kinds of technologies and uh, there can be cost-effective ways to do this all over the world in the oil and gas sector. That said, there will be some investments needed and we've seen companies really resist taking any action to do that on a voluntary basis. And that's why having mandatory systems in place, such as the EPA regulations, is very important. So it sounds like, you know, we've got a little bit of a carrot and a stick. The EPA will help, you know, with the stick side of things to ensure there's there's follow through. And what I'm also hearing you say is maybe once upon a time, you know, the the equipment to sort of monitor and address leaks was maybe less cost effective and that's no longer the case. And so since there isn't really a, a cost barrier, it's just a matter of, of being able to, you know, push these organizations to to take the steps to implement them. 
Yeah, so one of the things that has happened is as methane leakage has become such a well-known problem, there have been a lot of firms who've been innovating on the technology to uh, sense these leaks remotely. I do want to say that there are sectors where it's it's a little bit more difficult to cut emissions, and rice paddies is one of those places. Uh, agricultural emissions can be cut, but they're a little bit more complex than the oil and gas sector. And that's why there's so much attention on making sure that we get it right in the oil and gas sector. So you mentioned the the Global Methane Pledge, which was an outcome of the the last UN conference on climate change. What what changes have you seen? I mean, I know there's been more signatories since the pledge went into effect, but what momentum or what change are you seeing that's occurring as a result of that of that pledge? I think the Global Methane Pledge is really important because uh, what it did was signal that all of these countries together recognize that they can no longer ignore what is now the second largest contributor to uh, heat trapping emissions. And by having these countries, which include the United States, include the countries in the European Union, it ensures that now there is a collective commitment to work across different sectors to cut these emissions. And in the U.S., uh, the Biden administration has pledged some very specific policy steps domestically to deliver on that pledge. One of them is the EPA regulations, but also the recently passed in- Inflation Reduction Act. It contains a fee on methane uh, that is going to be another incentive for companies to cut back on these emissions. And in addition, uh, there is a, a real opportunity here now to share the technologies globally uh, that can help both detect as well as uh, cut emissions of methane. Yeah, it's exciting that uh, that made it into the Inflation Reduction Act. When when is the fee set to to go into effect? There's a fee in 2024 of $900 per metric ton of methane emissions, and that fee will go up to twelve hundred dollars in twenty twenty five and uh, up to fifteen hundred dollars in twenty twenty six and beyond. And as I was saying earlier, many of the actions that companies can take to cut these emissions are no net cost. And when you say no net cost, I assume that's because if they're doing a better job uh, you know of containing leaks that they then have more natural gas, you know methane that in turn that they can you know sell and distribute and, and make money with. Exactly. I mean, the fact is that this is a, a useful product uh, that they are selling, that they're just letting escape into the atmosphere, um, and that is contributing to climate change. Now, in the big picture, uh, it's really important to recognize that we need transformational shifts because we actually need to wean ourselves off methane gas if we're going to meet our climate goals. It's not enough uh, just to get off coal we actually have to sharply reduce our dependence on natural gas. Yeah, and we we definitely, you know, hammer on that in our, our, uh, our episodes. We're going to continue, obviously, to rely on a certain amount of fossil fuels for the near term, but the sooner we can move away from them, you know, the better, better off we're going to be. Um, so Absolutely. And I think one of the challenges right now is that there has been a lot of misinformation and disinformation from the fossil fuel industry sort of touting natural gas as clean. And the reality is gas might combust cleaner at a power plant. 
but the upstream methane emissions leakage uh, makes it such that gas is not actually that much cleaner than coal. In fact, if you look at some of the leakage estimates, it might even be worse uh, in the near term from a climate perspective. And right now with this really horrible, unjust war in Ukraine, we have seen uh, the fossil fuel industry sort of take advantage of this moment to push even more natural gas development here in the United States. Yeah, indeed. And, and you know, unfortunately, not surprising that, that they would use that to their, their advantage. But it, it sounds like at least in as far as the United States is concerned, there's, you know, progress, you know, on, on the near term horizon here with the, you know, forthcoming EPA rule and with this methane fee are there other you know global economies uh, that are taking policy actions in addition to obviously being part of the the global methane pledge which is which is voluntary yeah so the european union nations have found themselves in a very tough spot with this war in ukraine and the um, surrounding energy crisis that it's unleashed And I think one thing that's made clearer to countries in Europe is that their over-reliance on um, natural gas exports uh, from uh, Russia has put them in a very tough spot. And so there's been an acceleration of policies in Europe uh, to wean themselves off uh, Russian gas as much as possible, but gas uh, more holistically. So yes, in the short term, to, to meet a crunch moment, there are imports that are coming in from the United States, uh, but there's a real commitment from countries like Germany to actually break free of this fossil dynamic and really invest in carbon-free sources of energy, everything from ratcheting up heat pumps to uh, increasing uh, fuel efficiency of vehicles, increasing energy efficiency across the board, really ramping up renewable energy, all of these ways of get, getting off Russian gas and oil. Yeah, it's it's I suppose a silver lining of you know what is a you know pretty terrible conflict, and it's heartening to see the EU taking that that approach. If we look at methane and kind of the the momentum in the oil and gas sector to to try to cut it back and cut it back quickly, what what's missing? What you know what work still needs to be done? Well, here's where we are right now. We have not yet seen the industry take the steps that it needs to. And I think the EPA uh, regulations that we're expecting, the oil and gas methane regulations, are going to be critical to force the industry to take measures to cut these emissions um, together with the methane fee and the Inflation Reduction Act. I think the industry understands now that it is in the spotlight that business as usual is not acceptable anymore. But taking the measures that are required is not going to happen voluntarily. And I think that's why uh, these policies are are really critical. Um, I think the other piece of this is uh, looking at those sectors that are harder to cut emissions from, like the agricultural sector, looking for opportunities to cut landfill methane. Again, reusing uh, that methane instead of having it leak into the atmosphere. And then one piece that I think has had even less attention is what can we as consumers be doing in terms of our choices in our homes and businesses to uh, make sure that we're transitioning away from natural gas 
So the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, includes some really attractive rebates and tax credits for homeowners and businesses that are uh, investing in clean energy and efficiency improvements in buildings. And among that is if you have a natural gas stove in your kitchen, this is that moment to take advantage of these rebates. This is a really great opportunity to make the switch because science also shows that natural gas stoves inside houses, they actually leak gas even when they're off. And that means at very, very low levels, but continuing to leak gas, that means there is methane leakage happening uh, in households, but also co-pollutants that come with that, like nitrogen dioxide, cancer-causing agents like benzene, et cetera. So a great opportunity to clean up appliances that are in your kitchen, take advantage of the rebates and tax credits, and be part of this shift away from natural gas. If I'm hearing you correctly, there's sort of a, a twofold opportunity for people to help contribute, you know, to moving away from, you know, from fossil fuels. One is that, you know, you're switching away from fuel sources that use methane or natural gas. So maybe your stove or your you know, gas furnace to a heat pump. And then also that people are just reducing their overall energy demand. So even if there are, you know, there's natural gas in the electricity mix that they have, they're reducing their, you know, need for electricity, which in turn is is cutting the need for methane. Yeah, it's both and. There's a lot of things you can do as an individual consumer, and it's really important to put pressure on policymakers and your utility companies to stop this over-reliance on natural gas and switch to cleaner forms of energy. Look, wherever you live in the country, I think this year um, you've probably seen uh, some kind of climate impact. So you don't need any reminder that the climate crisis is here, it's now. But equally, keep in mind that the solutions are well within our reach, that the reason that they haven't been implemented is because of the fossil fuel industries lobbying against them and policymakers that remain beholden to the fossil fuel industry. So when you're voting, think about all those things. Think about the kind of future you want to leave your children and grandchildren and vote for policymakers who recognize that the climate crisis has to be addressed right now. Yeah, well, we we couldn't agree here more at Climate Optimist. I I think uh, going out and and being a conscious climate voter is is a positive thing. Well, we have covered a lot of ground here, and hopefully, folks feel more versed in both the problem and the solution of of methane. And just wanted to say, you know, thank you, Rachel, for for coming on and and sharing your knowledge with us and giving us some opportunities that we can all you know get involved with personally. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. So Thomas, what were your uh, thoughts on the on the interview with uh, Rachel? A couple of things. First, I was unaware of the uh, the magnitude of the short term impacts of methane. I always, you know, heard about sort of this twenty six times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide, but really, that's when you're looking at it over over a hundred year period. But on a twenty year basis to have it more than 80 times, a bit of a shock to the system. So that's a really good reason why we should probably be getting on top of these emissions. And that brings me to the other point, the underestimation or the magnitude of the underestimation of the emissions from the fossil fuel industry. Sort of, I was unaware of really how much that was, but at the same time, 
not really surprised because when whenever we go down the uh, fossil fuel rabbit hole, it always seems to get deeper and deeper. So, how about you, Jason? Yeah, I was, you know, maybe not surprised, but disappointed to hear that you know things are worse than than we thought they were. But as you say, not not totally surprised by it. You know, I think the fact that we're you know we've been talking about you know the the need to reduce methane just as we have about carbon dioxide and the fact that it's not going to be a, a net extra cost for the industry it just says how much work they've done to delay and undermine efforts to to address these leaks and you know and really in my mind just underscores the fact that it's time to put the hammer down and so it's good to hear that you know the US Environmental Protection Agency is on the cusp of releasing, you know, the regulation. You know, it was good to hear that in the Inflation Reduction Act that, you know, we've got a, a fee on methane, you know, that's coming. But I, I think it's on all of us to continue to put political pressure on our leaders that, you know, this is something that's essential to have and and essential to have it sooner than later. You know, I think, you know, in these final stages of rulemaking and whatnot, the, you know, fossil fuel folks are going to continue to look for ways to to get around this stuff. So, you know, let's, let's be eyes wide open about the fact that they're going to be dragging their feet. And so we need to keep the pressure up on our side to ensure there's the political will to, to really turn the screws. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing that's changed more recently is our ability to see these methane emissions. Um, you know, there are a couple of satellites up there now that can uh, trace methane emissions and a new one about to be launched. It's a partnership between the U S and the New Zealanders. And I think, that's the problem with, well, carbon dioxide and methane. They're colorless gases. You can't see them. It's not like nitrous oxide that, you know, makes the, the city's skyscape go brown with, with uh, haze. And so being able to now look at that from satellites and say, well, look, this is where these sources are coming from means that we can start doing something about it. Because if you can't identify where it's coming from, it makes it really hard to get that ball rolling. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, I think the other thing worth calling out when we're talking about these leaks, uh, if we look at sort of the non-fossil side of methane emissions, which, you know, is roughly 60%, you're talking about agriculture and, and waste, which Rachel mentioned, there's also good potential here to expand the use of what's called renewable natural gas or biogas, where we're putting in place the the structures needed to capture, you know, methane when it's coming from a landfill or methane, you know, from manure, from, you know, feedlots. The beauty of it is, even though it's more expensive, is that not only are you avoiding having that methane go up into the atmosphere, you're also offsetting the need to pull more, you know, fossil gas out of the ground. Yeah, look, I totally agree, Jason. It allows the the gas industry to utilize what will otherwise be a, a massive piece of sunken capital in the form of you know, their gas infrastructure. So, you know, I, I think you're dead right. There are a lot of landfill sites, dairies, piggeries, all these sites that have large effluent ponds or organic matter breaking down where we could be continuing to capture this gas and use it for the right purposes, not for domestic purposes anymore, because we all know that we should be moving away from gas in any domestic application and towards the electrification and the use of heat pumps. But for other industrial applications where the higher temperatures of methane is still necessary, then absolutely, let's do it. Yeah. So I guess while there's a lot of work ahead, clearly with, you know, both addressing methane emissions in oil and gas and, you know, 
methane emissions from from agriculture and and waste. I think I take comfort in knowing that at least we have solutions that we can implement, right? It's not like we got to go out and and invent something. And, you know, it's especially exciting to hear on the oil and gas side of things that, you know, this this technology isn't that expensive, right? It's just a matter of getting out and doing it. And, you know, as we're as we're talking about kind of methane leaks and and flaring and whatnot. I was thinking, you know, it might be good to explain to folks a little bit more about, you know, what is gas flaring, right? And and why do oil companies do it in the first place? Yeah. So when you extract crude oil from the ground, it's really a, a concoction of a whole bunch of different hydrocarbons. And these hydrocarbons have varying weights. Um, but of course, when you're transporting them, really, you've got to either transport something as a liquid or as a gas. And so if you're drilling a well and you're primarily targeting uh, oil, if that is, you know, the, the heavier weights are more dominant in, in that well, then you've got to do something with this methane because if it's just leaking around the site, it becomes an explosive hazard. So really the whole reason for the flaring originally was a, a safety issue, basically that it allowed them to take this methane up a chimney and, and light it at the end and burn it off. So it didn't become an explosive risk. But of course, it's not perfect. It's not 100% combustion. It's a relatively cool, dirty, yellow flame. And so much of the methane doesn't get combusted, ends up in the atmosphere and um, you know, contributes to global warming more than the CO2 does itself. So that's why it's important that um, you know, we do utilize these gases because it's wasted energy, it's wasted gas and being able to capture that and do something useful with it if you've got to go to the effort of you know, producing it in the first place is, is a worthwhile attempt in most situations. But it's about spending the money on capturing it, compressing it, transporting it and getting it away from site. Yeah, and hopefully where that's where the you know this this methane fee in the in the U.S. and you know efforts underway in Europe will you know create the uh, the financial incentives to you know finally get us to address this inefficient flaring to address you know the leaks from the wellhead all the way to our you know to our homes. Yeah, and I think those leaks are probably a, a very important thing that we fully haven't handled yet because especially in, in the coal seam gas industry here in Australia. Um, you know, we just we don't fully realize how much is actually just leaking out of the ground during these operations. And so hopefully with the um, launch of these new satellites, we can get a better handle on that and realize what's going on. And, and hopefully that will put pressure on the government here to shut those operations down before they continue to get out of hand. So, you know, I guess this leads into really, you know, kind of the things that we can do as individuals. And you know, Rachel did a good job already of talking about the fact that, you know, in our homes, we moving away from things that use natural gas. So moving from a natural gas stove to electric, moving away from a gas furnace to an electric heat pump, upgrading, you know, appliances and becoming more efficient. So we don't use as much electricity knowing that, you know, we still have a big chunk that's coming from natural gas. And and I think the other two areas that are, that are worth calling out are, you know, helping cut back on the agriculture and waste side. You know, anytime you have food waste, it's going to break down and and release methane. And the amount of food waste that we have in places like the United States is way more than it needs to be. I mean, we we waste roughly 40% of our food. And so you want to talk about cutting back on on, you know, methane emissions, one of the best things we can do is reduce that food waste. When it comes to, you know, the agricultural sector, 
you know, obviously there's there's challenges in terms of dealing with the the methane released by by cattle and and other ruminants, but at, at the end of the day, if we all eat a little little less red meat, we're making an impact there too. So, so the other thing, in addition to you know trying to find ways to tackle your personal methane footprint, the other thing we'd like to recommend folks do if they're in the U.S. is to get involved here with the midterm elections approaching. You know, we've got about three weeks to go. And, you know, the best way to ensure that we have progressive climate policy is with a climate-friendly majority. And we've got some really close Senate and House races out there with pro-climate candidates. So we'll have some resources on our website, but yeah, encourage folks to consider making a donation to one of those candidates or, or even volunteering time. Um, you know, at this point, every little bit helps to get those folks across the, the finish line. So that's a wrap this week. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. And as a reminder, our next podcast won't be released until November 1st, but we hope you'll come back and and join us then. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. (music) 